All right, guys. All righty. It's beautiful. Beautiful. So, listen. I um, I'm in a little bit of a conundrum because I was praying and I was wondering how long it would be before this kind of caught up to me. But I was praying and I was fully convinced that this is what I was supposed to preach. And then last night in my prayer time with the Lord, I became fully convinced that something else is what I was supposed to preach. So I want you guys to do something with me. If you take notes, I don't want you to do that today. And I will do this too. So that way, none of us have any notes. How about that? Um, let's just talk. Let's, uh, let's do it a little bit different. Um, I think I'll probably be in Jeremiah 18, maybe Jeremiah 13. But my time of prayer last night, I was just praying. I was just talking to the Lord. And I have this thing that I do. And I do it every single week. And it's not some big secret and it's not some big elaborate spiritual thing that I do. But every single week, I literally beg and plead with God and ask Him to not let me go a single week without seeing someone brought to know Him. Someone brought to the Lord. Someone introduced to Jesus. I literally, every week, I beg God for that. Because I know statistically speaking that every time we come together, Somebody, especially in a room this size, somebody doesn't know the Lord. Somebody hasn't been introduced to Him. They may have the facade. They may have been said a sinner's prayer when they were young. And I don't want to argue about the validity of that or anything like that. But they've been living their life a different way. And they don't know if they're saved or if they're not saved. But they haven't really been following Jesus as a disciple of Christ. And they don't really know. And they're back and forth and they're back and forth. But just statistically speaking, in a room this size... Somebody doesn't know Jesus. And so every time we come together, if we have 50 plus people, I know statistically at least one or more of those 50 people don't know Jesus. And so that's why every single week I literally just beg God and plead with God, please, please do not let somebody come in here that doesn't know you and leave not knowing you. And I think, you know, there's been people here that I've talked to in the past that have said, I'm just not ready yet. And I'm like, but you know that God's real? And they're like, yes. And I'm like, and you know that Jesus is real? And like, yes. And you've seen what that's doing in the people's lives around you. And they're like, yes. And I'm like, so what are you waiting on? What is the problem? What's the disconnect? What's preventing you from choosing this day to follow Jesus? And they say things like, I'm just not ready I'm like, well, you're never going to be ready. Or I just don't know enough. Well, you're never going to know enough because the Spirit's the only one that can teach you and you can't have the Spirit till you have Jesus. And they're like, well, I'm just not clean enough. Maybe if I can get rid of this, maybe if I can just put this away, if I can get out of this situation, then I can come to Jesus and I can bring Him something worthy of having. And I'm like, that's never going to happen. You're never going to get out of that situation on your own. It's just not going to happen. And so every single week, I think about these individuals that I've had these conversations with. Every single week, I think about the people that I've talked to that said, I'm just not ready. And I literally sometimes, and I don't want to make this sound, I'm not going to preach hell this morning, but sometimes I literally picture those people. And it, it's what fuels me to never give up. It's what fuels me to never stop asking. But sometimes I literally picture those people in hell 
crying and screaming out mad at God, mad at me, mad at everybody that's ever handed them a track, anyone that's ever preached the gospel to them, anyone that's ever offered them Jesus before. There's a saying in Jeremiah, and that's not where we're going to preach today, but he says this. He says, they say day and night, the summer is ended, the harvest is past, and we're not saved. There will come a day, right now is not that day, and anyone can come to the Lord, but there will come a day when the summer's over, the harvest is done. There's no more opportunity, there's no more chances, there's no more call, altar calls, there's no more calls to repentance, it's done, it's over, it's finished, finished. it's finite, it's gone. And every single person that's rejected that will literally have all of these scenes playing over in their mind. I think about someone that I sat down and had a conversation with, and they just kept saying, I'm just not ready yet, just not yet, maybe next time, maybe next time. And if they don't come to the Lord throughout all of eternity, they're going to see that conversation play over and over and over again in their head. And so I was just talking to the Lord, and I was like, I was like, I know that people would say that me praying that way, me praying, God, don't let me go a single week without introducing someone to you. Some people might say that's a selfish prayer so that you can say you've introduced all these people to the Lord. And I'm like, I don't care if it's selfish or not. I don't care because the bottom line is my favorite thing in the entire world, my favorite thing, and there's nothing like it. And until you do it, you won't understand, but there is nothing like sitting down with someone or standing and having a conversation and getting to introduce someone to Jesus. There's nothing like it. There's nothing like it when they say something like, I'm just not good enough. And you say, great, neither am I. Or they say, I'm just too weak. Great, so am I. Or I'm just not clean enough. Great, I'm dirty too. Or I just don't know enough. Great, I'm an idiot too. There's something about when someone has all of these problems and no matter what problem they name, you know you have the solution. No matter what situation you're in, you know you have the answer. And it's great when you see the tears in their eyes. And I'm not saying that they have to cry, but there's something about when they begin to shed tears and when they begin to truly let that overflow from their heart and they truly believe in you. There's something wonderful about that. When they cry and they come to Jesus with tears in their eyes and they just want to meet the man that can answer every problem. And then it's not saying that their life will be a bed of roses after that. In fact, everyone I leave to the Lord, I always tell them the same thing. This is the easiest moment of your life. Tomorrow may be the hardest day. I don't sugarcoat it. We shouldn't sugarcoat sharing the gospel. Getting saved, being converted, it's the easiest thing that will ever happen in your life. God turns away no one that comes to Him. But the rest of your life may literally be like hell on earth. Because the devil is going to try every single thing that he can to take that away from you. Jeremiah 18. I don't know where we're going with this. God, let's just, please, just talk to this people. 18 verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. This is one of my favorite pictures in all of Scripture. Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. And then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. 
Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Listen, a potter, when they're making it, and you guys have probably seen the pottery classes where they have the table and it spins it around and they're just, their hands are just so artistically working with that clay and it's folding and it's morning it, morphing it into a jar or a pot or whatever. And if it has a blemish in it, they don't just take the whole pot and just chuck it against the wall. They can take their hands and they can slide and they can for- force that blemish out. Or even if it gets a crack in it, all they've got to do is just get it wet again and just keep spinning it and forming it. And they can fix that blemish and they can fix that mold. And it's almost like what God's saying here is what He's saying is just like you're that clay, I can just sit there and form you. And yeah, I know you've got problems, but that pot can't fix that crack on its own. That pot can't fix that blemish on its own. That pot can't get rid of that mistake on its own. It has to be God. So if you're sitting there and you're like, God, I want to come to you. I want to serve you, but I'm just not good enough. You haven't really called me. Maybe you're saying, I'm saved. I've given my life to the Lord, but I can't possibly be of any use to Him. Look what I've done with my life. Mike preached last night. You guys don't want to know what he did for the first third of his life. You guys don't want to know the things that he did before he came to the Lord. You guys don't really want to know the extent of the things I did before I came to the Lord. The point isn't what you've done and what the jar looks like when the potter gets started. If you guys have ever seen the way they start out, they take this big hunk of clay and they put water on it so it looks like a big sloppy mess of mud and they slap it on the wheel and they start with a lump. Now how many of you guys would want to go ahead and bake that lump and let it harden and set it on your dining room table? Not many, because it looks like garbage. But once they're done and they mold it and they fashion it into a beautiful vessel and then they bake it and it's hard and they paint it and it's some of that stuff it, from when they originally did this in this time frame is worth millions of dollars now to collectors. Because they're that beautiful, they're that artistic, they're that valuable. And what God's saying is, yeah, you may look like a lump of hot mess, but if my hands can mold you And if you allow me to work the blemishes out, if you allow me to fix the cracks, if you allow me to just simply work on you and form you, you may not be anything honorable now. You may not have the potential to do anything in the kingdom now. But if you let God mold you, if you let God form you, then He has a place and a purpose and a design for you to fit and to work in the church. And not everything in the church is holding a microphone and preaching. Not everything in the church is in the spotlight being seen. There are many things that bring God glory that don't have a limelight attached to them. There are many things that bring God glory that nobody sees. To get the church running and to have the services that you have, to have the music, to have the preaching, to have all of the stuff, the food over there, all of the things that we do, it takes a lot of unseen effort. So, I guess what I'm trying to say is, is there's two aspects to this. The first aspect is people that go their whole lives banking on something they did when they were a child. Banking on coming up because their parents encouraged them to do and coming up to the front and saying a quick sinner's prayer and repeating after the pastor and then going and living the rest of their life in the driver's seat, never ever considering what God has for their life. And then one day when they're old, wondering, have I even 
lived for God at all. And then you get all those questions in your mind and people will encourage you. It's just the devil speaking to you. It's just the devil whispering you, causing you to doubt your salvation. And in some cases it is. But in some cases, maybe it's the Spirit of God pleading with people saying, that sinner's prayer that you did, that wasn't anything. What you need is to really surrender your life to Jesus. What you need is to really just give it off. What you need is to really just completely give it all to God. Because until you do, you're going to be a lump of hot, steamy, clay mess that the potter hasn't even done anything with. But once you surrender yourself to the potter's hands, he begins to form you and mold you and fashion you and work out those blemishes and work out those cracks because that lump of hot clay isn't going to become anything unless the potter gets his hands on it. Jeremiah 13, verse 1. Thus says the Lord to me, Go and buy a linen loincloth and put it around your waist. Some translations say underwear, some translations say belt. And put it around your waist and do not dip it in water. So I bought a loincloth according to the word of the Lord and put it around my waist. And the word of the Lord came to me a second time. Take the loincloth that you have bought, which is around your waist, and arise. Go to the Euphrates and hide it there in the cleft of the rock. So I went and hid it by the Euphrates as the Lord commanded me. And after many days the Lord said to me, Arise, go to the Euphrates and take it from there, the loincloth that I commanded you to hide there. Then I went to the Euphrates and dug, and I took the loincloth from the place where I'd hidden it. And behold, the loincloth was spoiled. It was good for nothing." Then the word of the Lord came to me, thus saith the Lord, even so will I spoil the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem, this evil people who refuse to hear my words, who stubbornly follow their own heart and have gone after other gods to serve them and worship them, shall be like this loincloth which is good for nothing. For as the loincloth clings to the waist of man, so I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah to cling to me, declares the Lord, that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory, but they would not listen." Listen, understand something. And this is a little bit of geography, but the Euphrates River flowed from the Garden of Eden. When the Garden of Eden was formed, there was four rivers that were created to flow out of the Garden of Eden, and one of those was the Euphrates. And for you that don't know, the Garden of Eden was where God first created and took man and put him in the garden so that man and God could walk in intimacy and perfect harmony and perfect relationship every single day. That was the plan. That was the intention. Man fell, yada, yada, yada. All that happened. So the Euphrates is a river that flows from the original intention of God, from the plan of God, from the place of perfect relationship with God. And what God's saying is take this belt, take this loincloth, take this underwear, I don't care what you, take this thing and put it beside the river, under a rock beside the river. And then he goes back many days later and it's worthless. See, but the belt didn't become worthless immediately. It wasn't like he put it there and then came back an hour later and it was immediately worthless. It was over the course of many days. So each day it got a little bit more useless, a little bit more worthless, a little bit less good, a little bit more good for nothing, if that's even a statement, more good for nothing. It got worse and worse each day. It wasn't like it was just put there, and as soon as it was put there, it was worthless. See, the point that I want you guys to understand is if we can just take this allegory, this symbolism for just a second, Eden is like the church. 
The church in this fallen world is God's perfect intention. He sent Jesus to die to redeem mankind, to create the body of the church, which is His children, which is His, His people, His fellowship, His kingdom. And we are supposed to have intimacy with Him through the context of the church and go out and affect the world, right? That's His perfect intention. Well, many of us, what we have done is his, we have went not to Eden, not to the church, but we have went a little bit downriver. We're not even in the water. We're just next to it. And see, what the Spirit does is He flows through the context of the church to the people and then flows through the people to the community. But many of us, what we've done is we've said a prayer, we've got saved, quote unquote, and now we're sitting not in the river, but we're sitting beside it. The river is the flow of the anointing. So we're not in the anointing. We're not in the spirit. We're just beside it. We're spectator sporting. We're watching. And so you've got the church. We're not there. We're there in body, but we're not there in mind or in spirit. We're thinking about what we're going to have for lunch. We're thinking about the party after church. We're thinking about what our work week coming up, starting tomorrow. We're thinking about this. We're thinking about that. We're thinking about bills we can't pay. We're thinking about health issues we don't have fixed yet. We're thinking about all of these things. So we're not really spiritually there at church. We're just downriver from it. And we're not in the spirit or in the anointing. We're just beside it. We're just watching. So now, day one, we're okay. I mean, we're, we're not We're dirty. But we're not worthless. But then after many days, many years of being not in the church, just there in body, not in mind or spirit, and near the flow of the anointing, but not in the flow of the anointing. We're just spectating. We're just watching. We're just marking our calendar saying that we've went to church. We're not serving the Lord. We're showing up so that we can be counted, so that we can say, I'm a member of such and such church. I attend such and such church. But we're not doing anything. We're just showing up. We're just there. Our Bible sits on our nightstand four out of five days during the week. We may pick it up and do a devotion one of those days. Our prayer closet is all but abandoned. We may say a quick prayer as we jump in the car like, Lord, bless me today, da-da-da-da-da. If somebody sends us a text saying so-and-so sick, we may text them back, I'll pray for them, and then never think about it again. We're not completely away. It's not like we're over here in hell and in the world and in Egypt like Mike's devotion this morning doing all these horrible things. We're just in the middle somewhere. We're just in the middle somewhere. Go to Revelation 3. Revelation 3, verse 15. I'll give you a second to get there. So, do you guys, are you getting the picture here? You've got Egypt over here, which is what Mike was even given his devotion about, where they wanted to go back after they were delivered, which is a representation of the world, of bondage, of sin, of slavery, yada, yada, yada. We're not in Egypt. And then over here you've got the Euphrates River which flowed from the Garden of Eden which is a representation of the church and the Spirit flowing from the church. And we're not there either. We're just somewhere in the middle. We're somewhere in the muck in between Egypt and sin and the world and on our way to hell we're going to blow the doors of hell wide open. So we're not over there, but we're not over here of any use to God either. We're just buried in the mud somewhere in between. Revelation 3 verse 15. I know your works... You were neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. Exclamation point. That's a a powerful statement. That's a declaration. I would that you were either cold or hot. One or the other. So because you were lukewarm somewhere in the middle, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and need nothing not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. 
Listen, they're not blowing the doors of hell off the hinges. They're not going to hell in a handbastic. They're not on their way marching into hell and happy about it. They're not doing all the things that the world does. Maybe they're sitting in the seats at church. Maybe they're next to the Spirit. Maybe they said the sinner's prayer when they were a kid because their parents wanted to them to, because their friends were doing it. Maybe they went to a youth camp one year and they said, I'll say the sinner's prayer and I'll be good. I'll have my fire insurance. I'll have my coverage. I'll have my liability insurance. And I'll be good the rest of the days of my life. And so they're no longer in hell. They're not getting drunk every night. They're not getting wasted every night. They're not smoking dope and taking pills and doing all of those things. They're not having affairs. They're not doing all of these things. They're in church. They're next to the anointing. They're in the right vicinity. But they're not in the Spirit. They're not flowing in the Spirit. They're not in the river experiencing the joy of the Lord. They talk about it. You ask them how they're doing. They say, oh, the Lord's blessing my socks off. I'm too blessed to be stressed. I'm good and God's good. God is good all the time. All the time God is good. And they're lying straight through their teeth. Come on, I've said it a thousand times and I'll say it ten thousand more. What is the motif, the motto, the saying that I keep stressing? What is it? Be authentic. Aim for authenticity. Just be real. You know why? Because real attracts real. But it repels everything else. See, people that are hurting are not going to come to fake. Because... Any of you that have ever lived any time outside the church in the world, the one thing that a sinner can do better than anyone else is they can recognize a fake Christian immediately. I know because I was there. I was a heathen to every extent of the word. Some of y'all have heard my testimony. I was bad. And anytime anyone came any near, anywhere near to me, with what they called the gospel, the first thing that I could do was immediately recognize if they were real or not. Because you may not be able to tell in that conversation when they're just giving you these rehearsed lines because even the real Christians, sometimes they rehearse the lines so that they can get it and their facts correct so that they can present the gospel in a biblically correct way. That's what we do on Sunday night is learn methods of how to present the gospel so that we can do it biblically correct. We don't want to say anything heretical when we're trying to share the gospel. But five minutes after they stop their pitch, you can realize if they're fake or if they're real. Because what they do when you reject it or accept it, what they do in the moments following, what they do the next day when they're alone and no one's looking, what they do when they're amongst their friends who don't all of them go to church. You know the one thing that was terrible when I first got saved and I don't talk about this a lot when I first got saved I got saved in a church of God church and these people a couple of them fooled me I thought you know these are some awesome people they're excited about the Lord one lady just got back from one girl not lady she was like 17 or 18 it just got back from a missions trip to Africa for like three months I was like that's awesome these people are really hungry for Jesus but then when none of the adults are around and it's just the youth group, just the college age kids, she's talking about getting wasted that night on a Sunday night. 
And then there's another girl who I was talking to who we were really good friends. And I was thinking, you know, this is a Christian girl. You know, I just, I need some help. And, you know, she was pretty. So I'm thinking, hey, maybe, you know, future wife one day, because that's what unmarried guys think of in the back of their mind, whether they say so or not. But you know what I found out a couple weeks later after going here a couple weeks and everybody just kind of started acting weird around me? They found out what I was before I'd given my life to the Lord. And I didn't have a simple altar call conversion. I had a crying for six hours conversion. I had an arguing with me, with God, arguing with the pastor, arguing with the elders of the church. I had a long, all day, 16 hour long conversion. I had a, and I'm not saying you have to have it that way, but that's what I had. They found out that I was a drug dealer. They found out the things that I was addicted to. And this youth group took bets of how long it would be before I fell, how long it would be before I left the church, how long it would be before I was back in drugs. The people that I was sitting there saying, I don't have a friend in the world because I just wrote all my friends off so that that way I knew that I had no temptation in my life. And so I was completely alone in that sense, with the exception of, you know, God's never leaves you or forsakes you. But these are the same people who will fill those church pews or church chairs in our case, who will stand up with us and out-sing us during worship, who when we have an altar call, they're rushing forward, they're praying for people, they're going on mission trips, and they're no closer to God than the man that's blowing hell wide open. They only have the name attached to it. They say, yeah, I'm a Christian. But their, their libraries don't reflect it, their movies don't reflect it, their conversation doesn't reflect it, their actions don't reflect it, their friends don't reflect it, their hatred, their doubt their judgment, their condemnation, their hypocrisy. None of that shows that they're a Christian whatsoever. But yet they say it every day. Ask me, I'm a Christian. I'll meet you at the bar later. But I'm a Christian now. When are we going to really be authentic? And I've got to say, some of you guys, you know, I haven't got to know as much as I've gotten to know others. And it's been such a blessing to get to know you guys and see how you guys are striving and pushing and pushing and pushing. But everybody here just needs to... When are we collectively, not just the people in this room, although it does apply to every one of us, but just the church in general, when are we going to stop sitting beside the river and becoming less and less valuable, becoming more and more worthless? When are we going to stop that and just get in the river. Just get in the flow of the Spirit. Just let the Spirit take us. Because you know, if you follow that train of how the river flows, and you follow it and you go to places like Ezekiel and it flows out into the ocean and it gives life to everything that's in the sea that was previously dead, and you follow those pictures all the way through, the point is, is if you can get in the river, if you can get in the flow of the Spirit, then the Spirit is going to use you as an active agent or active instrument in His plan to carry the gospel to the nations. And it doesn't have to be that you jump in a plane and go to Africa. It can be that you can finally have those conversations 
conversations in Walmart. You can finally have those conversations on your job. You can finally talk to your friends. You can finally be the example to your family that they need. You can be the salt and the light in the world. You can be the example. And there's something about having the Spirit on you in such a heavy way that sometimes you don't even have to open your mouth. The Spirit does it for you. One of my favorite men of all time was a man named Smith Wigglesworth. And also I have a story about Charles Finney who did the same thing. Smith Wigglesworth was sitting on a train. He was exhausted, dozing in and out. And all of a sudden, two men come up to him, drop on their knees and start confessing every sin that they had, trying to get him to show them the truth. And when he finally leads them to the Lord, he asks them, why on earth did you do that? And their response was, we became so heavily convicted by the Spirit of God that was on you that even sitting over here across the aisle, we couldn't take the weight of our sin anymore. Documented fact. Charles Finney in New York walked into a factory and a woman said an unsavory comment about him. He looked at her. He didn't even look at her in a mean way or a judgmental way. He just looked at her. She turned away and started crying. It passed on to everyone through. No one preached. And the whole factory was shut down for two days because the owners, who were atheists, said that these people have to tend to religion first so that we can get back to making profit. And they shut the factory down for two days so that people could get right with God. And no one said a thing. It's just because men and women were getting in the Spirit They were getting in the flow. They were done. They were fed up with sitting beside the river. They were fed up with like what uh, it says in Jeremiah 18 about the potter. He wants to mold us into the vessel of honor, but we keep wanting to do what we want to do. We've got our plans for our life. We've got our destiny, our design, our goal. Listen. We want to be comfortable. We want to make sure that tomorrow is taken care of. We want to make sure that our finances look a certain way. We want to make sure that we have a certain medical insurance. We want to make sure that we have all of these ducks in a row. And we say that we're doing it to provide for our children, but really we're doing it because we're too scared to trust God. Do you think that you can do any better for your children than God can? Do you think that you can do any better for your future than God can? Listen, if I wanted to be comfortable, we never would have came here. I had a job where I had insurance. I was making a lot more money than I make now. Yeah, it sucked. But it was comfortable. I got off at the same time every day. I got to spend the afternoon with my family. Yeah, I was sore and I was hurting because it was a physically demanding job. But I had every Sunday off. I could always go to church on Wednesday night. But God said, you're going to go to Mississippi. Well, there's not a job waiting for me in Mississippi. This is going to be what this is what you're choosing. And guess what, guys? We chose this knowing that the contract that we have is going to end. Like the district right now paying our salary is going to stop. And then we're going to be fully dependent upon the gifts and the tithes and offerings that you guys do and whether or not this church is financially viable or not. We chose to give up our kids' insurance and our health insurance, not knowing what was waiting for us here. 
We chose to sell our house before we bought a house here. And I'm not bragging that saying we're awesome because we were freaking out. But we decided that our freaking out was okay as long as we decided we were going to trust God. See, faith isn't that you know everything's going to work out. That's a lie from hell. Faith is not knowing if it's going to work out or how it's going to work out. It's just trusting that God will work it out in His way, in His time, through His methods, and knowing that He loves you. So what we've done is we have either said this sinner's prayer and deceived ourselves into thinking that that was enough, and now we're stuck by the river, and we have no God in us, or we've actually gotten saved and we just want to spectate. We're like, God, I want to have a covenant with you. I want to have a relationship with you. But as long as it doesn't cost me anything, as long as it doesn't cost me, as long as this relationship doesn't require anything of me, as long as I can come to church and still do what I want with the rest of my life, then I'm good. This is a great relationship. You don't go to hell. God says that He'll take care of your finances and He'll bless you and He'll heal you and all this stuff. And I don't have to do anything? Wonderful. Except that's not what He says. What He says is, I will take care of you if you surrender to Me. If I made Lord of your life. And we've taken that word Lord and we've kind of made it this abstract ideal of, oh, Jesus is up here somewhere transcended above everything and it's not an active thing in my life. I just live my life and then attach Jesus' name to it. That's not what Lord means. What Lord means is that you open this up every single day, that you seek Him in prayer every single day, and you find out what He wants you to do every single day, that you don't take a step unless you know that it's a step taken that He has designed for you to take. It says the steps of a righteous man or woman are ordered by the Lord. So have you asked yourself, is what I'm doing with my money, is what I'm doing with my job, is what I'm doing with my every single day, is my contributions to the church, not financially, my contributions as in the physical aspect of myself, my health, my time, all of that, is that really what God asked of me? Or am I just sitting on the side, sitting beside the river, sitting on the table away from the potter's hands, out of the river, out of the spirit, and I'm just sitting I'm not doing any harm to anyone, but I'm not doing any good to anyone either. See that loincloth, that belt, that underwear? It wasn't hurting anybody in the mud under the rock. Nobody even knew it was there. It wasn't hurting no one, but it wasn't helping anyone either. It wasn't fulfilling its purpose. It wasn't clinging to a person, which is what it was designed to do. It wasn't holding anyone's pants up if it was a belt. I mean, if a belt ain't holding the guy's pants up, it ain't doing much good as a belt. Unless you're a lady and it's a fashion accessory. But still, it's still there. It's still visible. It's not in the mud under a rock. And likewise, God is saying, because you're sitting here, choosing your own way, dictating your own life, not abiding in my lordship, not surrendering to my leading, not following me. Because see, Jesus didn't tell Peter, hey, confess me as your Lord and Savior and then go back to fishing. He said, follow me. And Peter had a decision to make. He could say, I believe that you're the Messiah. I believe that you're the Son of God. But I'm going to get back in this boat and keep fishing because I've got to provide for my family. Because Peter was married. And tradition says that he also had a daughter. I don't know. The Bible doesn't say anything about that. But it said that he had a wife and children. And we know that he had a wife because the Bible speaks of his mother-in-law. So he gave up fishing to follow Jesus, and he had a family that he needed to provide for. 
He gave up his livelihood to follow Jesus. And I'm not telling you that you need to go quit your job. What I am telling you is that you better be willing to quit your job if Jesus tells you to quit your job. You better be willing to give up everything that you think you need or own or desire or want, all your plans for tomorrow, all your plans for the coming year. You better be willing to surrender every single bit of that if God leads you to do that. Because it's not about what you want. It's not about what makes you comfortable. It's not about what you think is good for you or what's good for your kids. It's about what God says. See, there's going to come a great day when we're going to stand before the Lord. And I bring this up a lot because I think about it a lot. When we stand before God and we're going to have to give an account for every word we said, every deed we did, every choice we made, everything that we ever did in this body, we're going to have to give an account for that. And it's going to be this big pile of achievements or things that we saved up and bought or things that we gave to our kids or all of this stuff. And then God's going to set a match to it. And it's either going to abide because it was His or it's going to burn into ash because it was ours. And we have to uh, understand and hope that what we did abides because it was God leading, not us. But we will never be able to do that unless we really start turning the lens or the focus inward. We're never really going to understand the will of God for our lives until we start seeking it. Be honest. How many of you this week asked God one time what His will for you was? Whether it be for your life, for the day, what you were going to wear, what you should do with your money, what you should do with your time, how you could help, how you could give, how you could share the gospel. How many of you, church aside, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night aside, just you in your own time, in your own bedroom as you're getting ready for the day or in your own private time of prayer, how many of you actually asked God what His will for you was in any way? Good. How many of you are going to do that moving forward? That's the real question. Because if we're not, then we're wasting our time. If we're not going to diligently seek what His will is for us, then we don't actually believe that He's the Lord of our life. If we don't actually seek the command of His Lordship, then we don't actually respect Him as Lord. Let me put it this way. Whether you like Him or not, Donald Trump is our president. And until they get impeach him or the election comes up, he's going to stay our president. If he issues an executive order, we're legally ob obligated to follow it. If we lived in a monarchy and we had a king, and the king executed an order or gave forth a command, we would be obligated to follow it on penalty of imprisonment or death. In this day... Caesar, at the birth of Jesus, we're coming close to Christmas, we're going to celebrate the first advent of Christ. Caesar Augustus put forth the command that he wanted to take a census of a whole nation. The whole re reason that Jesus was born in Bethlehem was due to the census put forth by Caesar. The ruler, the emperor of the world at that time put forth a command and everyone followed it. Even people that had never seen Caesar before followed it. And therefore, David went to Bethlehem, Christ was born in Bethlehem. <laughs> In a stable. <clears throat> the point is, they had to know what Caesar's command was. 
And they wouldn't have been able to get away with the excuse of, I didn't know that was your will. Especially in those days, they could have been killed for violating the command of Caesar. We could be imprisoned for violating the law. How can we say that we respect Jesus Christ as our Lord if we've only said one time the sinner's prayer and then the rest of our life was stuck in the mud? Not in the river trying to receive His command, trying to follow His will, trying to be a part of His plan and His purpose. Not in Egypt, not in hell, not in the world, not doing all the things that the world does, not blowing the gates of hell wide open. None of that. We call ourselves Christians. We say that we are Christians because we got saved when we was five or six or ten or eleven or whatever. And then the next ten to fifteen years of our life has been anything but His Lordship. We've made the decisions about our job. We've made the decisions about when we read, when we pray. We've made the decisions about who we talk to and if we share the gospel. We've made the decisions about when or if we go to church. We've made the decisions about what we do, when we do it, and how we do it. And Jesus is just a fire insurance that we say that we believe in. And occasionally we'll meet with other people who say the same thing and we'll sing a few songs and we'll say... Merry Christmas, la-di-da, Happy New Year. And we believe that because we do that, we're good. But we have no idea what the will of the Lord is. We don't follow His Lordship because we don't know what His Lordship dictates. Because we don't ever open this. We don't ever seek His face. We don't believe in the two-way street of prayer. So we just, if we do pray, we just bring Him our laundry list or our grocery list of, God, I'd really like this. I'd really like you to take these bills. I'd really like you to heal me. I'd really like you to do this. I'd really like you to do this. Okay, have a nice day. I'll talk to you again tomorrow. We don't ever just sit down and just say, God, I just want to worship you. And if you would speak to me, your servant, your child, your beloved is listening. I want to know your will. We don't ever ask God, is this Your will for me? Is me going to this job today Your will? Or do You have something else for me? Is this Your will? We don't ever ask those questions. You know, John, the Gospel of John, chapter 10, Jesus gives the story of the Good Shepherd, and it's beautiful. But He says an amazing comment in there. A humbling comment. He says, my sheep know my voice. They know my voice. They hear my voice. My sheep hear my voice. And the voice of a stranger they won't hear. My sheep hear my voice. Do we hear His voice? Do we listen for His voice? Do we ever listen for what He has for us? Do we ever really want to get in the water? Do we want to get in the Spirit or do we want to stay in the mud? Because I know the mud is not really the best picture for this, but the mud is safe. The mud is clean in the sense that it's not in the world. And it looks good to the people around us in the sense that, oh, there's so-and-so. You know, they have a nice house, a good job. They're living the American dream. They go to church, dot, 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 dot. Getting in the Spirit, getting in the river, getting in the will of God, 
I said weird of God. It is the weird of God. Because if you truly get in, people are going to label you fanatical. They're going to label you radical. They're going to label you different. They're going to label you weird. And you know what? You are weird if you get in the water because no one else is in the water. All of the American church, at least 90% of it, is stuck in the mud. They're not in the world. They're not in Egypt. They don't look like hell. They look good. But they're useless. They're worthless. They're no good for anyone. They may not be hurting anyone, but they're no good for anyone either. We have been blessed. And I don't say this arrogantly because I had nothing to do with it. We have seen since April 1st when we came down here, since that day, we have seen 30 people give their life to the Lord as a result of this ministry. Do you know how many churches in America go 10 years without seeing three saved? Do you know how many churches in America go 10, 15 years without baptizing five people? Do you know they have the pretty buildings, they have the nice carpet, the nice chairs, the elaborate decorations. And sometimes I'm thankful that we don't have all the decorations because it looks like, oh, all of our money is going to reach the lost. Not saying that we won't ever get any. I'm just saying sometimes I look at this and I'm like, God, I'm thankful. I'm thankful that our sound system isn't that great, that it cracks and it breaks sometimes. That that soundboard, because I'm not awesome at it I haven't quite figured out the right balance to get this piano that I don't understand aligned with faith who also I don't understand (laughs) but sometimes when I hear the crack on the sound system instead of frustrating me sometimes it actually it actually makes me happy When I see that there's no decorations I mean we do have the cross and the alliance symbol but when I see that there's no decorations I'm thankful. And I'm thankful because all of you people, and we're some short right now, that's okay. People come in here and we worship God and we don't complain about the sound. We don't complain about the lack of decorations. We just worship God. You know how many people can't do that? That's not a prideful thing, but you know how many people can't do that? How many people would walk in here and see the no decorations and be offended? How many people would walk in here and hear the crack in our sound system and be offended? We've got it so backwards. We're so inward focused and we're heaping up our kingdom here on earth and we're like, I want the prettiest church with the prettiest pews, with the prettiest carpet, with the prettiest curtains and the stained glass and all of this stuff and we're going to spend thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars on it and we're going to ignore that this nursing home is here. We're going to ignore that this prison is here. We're going to ignore that people are dying and going to hell. Not just around our church. We're going to ignore the fact that people are dying and going to hell in our church. We're going to ignore all that. And we're just going to have a pretty building. We're going to have a guest speaker. And they're going to give you a great how-to message that's going to make you realize how you should line up your finances. Make you realize how you could have 10 steps to a happier life. 
preach every day is a Friday, preach that this is how you go about looking good, dressing the part, making your job the job that it, you want it to be, getting that promotion, blah, 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 blah. And I'm just going to be honest. I've had enough of it. I've had enough of it. What I want, if these walls have to stay bare, fine. If we empty the bank accounts, fine. But I'm not going to be the person that forgets that those people in the assisted living with our outreach that we did yesterday, that those people are forgotten. I'm not going to be the one that realizes, that forgets that the prison, people are in there and their lives are already bad and they're working diligently to make sure that they get worse. I'm not going to be the one that forgets that the elementary schools, there's a percentage of those kids who eat lunch at the elementary school, but then when they go home for the weekend, they may not eat another meal until Monday. I'm not going to be the one that realizes that those kids in high school, they have the parties, the alcohol, the drugs, all of that stuff, the sex, all of that vying for their attention. And we have a pretty building. And one day, after they have their fill of sin, maybe they get a decent job, and then they go sit in a pew in a pretty church, and they go to hell. I don't want to be that. Just because they said a sinner's prayer. They said a sinner's prayer when they were five. They went to elementary school. They went to middle school and high school, partied their guts out had all kinds of premarital sex, yada, yada, yada. And then they sit in a church because they've got a decent job the rest of their lives and because they said that prayer when they were five and baptized when they were seven, that they're good. And then there's pastors that will stand in this pulpit and tell them that they're good. And they can't tell you one thing about Jesus. You know, when I evangelize to people, I ask them one question usually. My, do you know Jesus? And then I, I break it down. Do you know Jesus? Or do you know about Jesus? Or do you know of Jesus? Or do you, have you never even heard of Jesus before? And I've said this in our evangelism training class. I went in Ray County where we came from. And in Ray County at the time, there was 30,000 people maybe in that county. And I, my statistics may be a little bit off. But there's over 90 churches. To put that in perspective... Here in the Waveland area, there's like 40,000 people. And there's less than 40 churches. So in Wright County, in the heart of the Bible Belt, there's literally a church on every corner. Literally a church on every single corner. And sometimes there's churches in the middle in between those corners. Churches next to churches next to churches. And you think, oh, that's a great thing. But it's not. I went out evangelizing with a former friend of mine. And we were walking up behind these two boys, high school age. And the one boy had a boot on his foot or on his leg because he had hurt his foot. He had hyperextended his leg, so he had a boot all the way up past. And I, I don't know the medical details of what he had torn or what he had done, but he was dragging the boot along. He wasn't able to pick it up. and walk. He was dragging it along. And we asked him one question. Can we pray for you? What? Can we pray for you? We believe God heals. Can we pray for your leg to be healed? It costs you nothing. We're not trying to get anything out of you. 
I mean, worst case scenario, you waste 30 seconds of your time, you don't get healed and you go on your merry way. Best case scenario, you waste 30 seconds of your time and your leg is healed and you can take that boot off. Sure, you can pray for me. So we prayed for him. And then we had them pray with us. And by the end of that conversation, when they finally walked away, he was carrying the boot bend in his knee. God completely healed him. But that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is tears literally came to my eyes. After we prayed for him and he took the boot off, we asked him, do you know Jesus? No, I've never heard of Jesus. In a county that has over 90 churches, less than 30,000 people and over 90 churches, this boy had never heard of Jesus. And then what broke my heart even more is when I turned to his friend and asked him the same question, his friend says, yeah, I'm a youth group member at such and such church. So the dude's best friend was a youth group member that attended a church every week three times, and he had no idea who Jesus was. Failure. Failure on the church's part. Failure on the county's part. This kid had no idea who Jesus was. His best friend was a member of a youth group. Neither one of them were saved. We led the boy that was healed to the Lord and we, let, we started to lead the other boy to the Lord and he said, can I please wait and go this Sunday, which was the next day, and do this in front of my parents with the pastor of my church? Absolutely you can. But the point is, churches have pretty buildings and no message they're whited sepulchers full of dead men and women. And many of the people that sit in those pews are going to hell because we have put forth this idea that you can say a prayer one time and you're good the rest of your life. So instead of following Jesus and getting in the river and going with the will of God and living your life for Jesus and living your life in surrender and knowing what the will of God for your life is, instead of doing that, we get out of Egypt and we walk over and we jump in the mud and cover ourselves with a rock and we say, we're Christians, we're good, we've got it right. And to the rest of the world, we look like the, the A class of people. But on the inside, we're rotting. Faith, you want to get something? Yeah, that's fine. Computer, whatever. Listen. You guys saw me. This right here, this crumbled piece of paper. This is what I was going to preach. And some of what I preached today was included in it. But notes aside... This is just from my heart. That's why I want, didn't want you guys to take notes. I just wanted you to listen. Because if we are really going to do something from God, for God, that's from God and for God, then we've got to get it right. We've got to get it right. We can't just bank on what happened yesterday or 10 years ago or 20 years ago and then we've forgotten about it. And you know what I say to people? Ashley, you remember this because I said it to you last Sunday night. You said, well, I said a sinner's prayer such and such time ago. After that service, I said, look, I don't care if you said a sinner's prayer that many years ago. Is it really going to hurt or offend God if you come up and say, God, I said a sinner's prayer when I was a kid, but I haven't been following you. And now I just want to make sure that I'm sure that I'm sure. So today I'm giving it all up. I'm going to be your disciple. I'm going to follow you for the rest of my life. Sinner's prayer be danged, okay? I'm talking about getting in front of God and saying, I'm yours. I don't make the decisions anymore. You know, you have that bumper sticker that says, Jesus is my co-pilot, blasphemy. If Jesus isn't the main pilot, he's not in your plane at all. 
Let's get rid of this idea that we can live our lives and make our decisions because we can't. That's a lie from hell. We have to surrender our will completely to God. And the only way that we're going to know His will is if we get to know Him. It says that Jesus is the Word from heaven. He's the Word of God. What is this? The Word of God. This is the divine revelation of who Jesus Christ is. If you want to know Jesus, if you want to know God, you've got to know this. And you don't have to be able to quote from Genesis to Revelation, but you have to be willing to allow this to mold you. The great thing about the Bible is that when you begin to pour into it, you don't interpret it. It begins to interpret you. It begins to say you don't line up. You don't add up. See any other book, you can look at it and you can see the author's flaws and mistakes and the plot holes and storyline errors and all of that stuff. But when you open the Bible, you can't see mistakes. The Bible begins to see the mistakes in you. You peer into the Bible, it peers back into you. It's the mirror with which we examine ourselves. And ladies, you know what I'm talking about when I talk about a mirror that begins to examine you. Because most of you wake up every morning and you stand in front of that mirror and you let that mirror tell everything that's wrong with you. And that's a blasphemous lie too. There ain't a thing wrong with any of you. Let this be your God. And if you don't have one, take one. They're free. This is where we're doing. We're going to do an altar call and it's going to be double folded. Face got music playing. The first altar call is this. You're banking your entire life on a prayer that you said a long time ago and you haven't lived a single moment for Jesus since then, then let's start over. Let's start fresh. The second altar call is this, if you have been living your life for Jesus, quote unquote, and you're confident that you're saved, but you're not in the river and you're not doing anything for the kingdom, then let's get you involved. Let's come up and let's pray over you to find your purpose, to find your spot. And there's a blue million of them. I've got a million things that you could do. Let's find your spot so that you can get involved and be a part of the movement of the Spirit. It has pleased God through the foolishness of preaching to save those that are lost. God could come down and show Himself to anyone He wanted to right now and have them be saved. But instead, He uses the foolishness of preaching. Well, the same carries true for you. Whatever your purpose is, God could do it Himself. But He chooses to use means like men and women. I want you to be useful in the kingdom. I want you to find your spot. I want you to be used. I don't want you to sit vacant. I don't want you to sit and be a seat warmer in the kingdom of God. There's something that you can do. I don't usually say close your eyes, bow your heads or anything like that, but I want everyone to close your eyes. I want everyone to start praying. This isn't so that you can come forward and nobody will look at you because if you're not brave enough to come forward when people are staring at you, then you're not brave enough to be a Christian because it's a hard road. I want everyone that needs to be saved, that doesn't want to bank the rest of their lives on a sinner's prayer to come forward now. Likewise, I want everyone that doesn't want to be a seat warmer, but wants to be put to work in the kingdom of God to come forward now as we play this music. We're going to begin to pray. And if you don't come forward, I do not want you to talk I do not want you to do anything other than pray and worship. If you have to talk, go outside. Life and death is on the line here. It's not time for idle conversation. Amen?
you're not up here, pray for those that are, worship God or leave.